We gather as a house of stories, as we learn of those who have gone before, the way in front of us becomes more clear. I'm Beth Elliott, and I'm so honored to be here with you. I am attending seminary to become a minister, and my heart is grateful to be here with you, my sponsoring congregation. I'm zooming in from Colorado, and I wanna name that as a white documented citizen of the United States, I am occupying indigenous land and recognize that Boulder County, where I currently live, there are territories of the Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho peoples. Your other guest speakers this morning are Emily Quo Lilly. Emily is a remote member of our congregation. She's married to our former ministerial resident, Reverend Dan Lilly. They live near Seattle with their 15-month-old daughter, Natalie, and two dogs. And Alana Rodriguez. Alana and her husband, Patrick, joined the church about eight years ago. Alana works as the religious education assistant, youth programs coordinator, and as our UU Kids Camp Administrator and Registrar. Your amazing worship team this morning is our worship leader, Judy Goring, musicians, guitarist Tom Godfrey, soprano Pauline Labar Shelton, and Susan Peck collaborated on our hymns today. We will also be fe featuring the music of the local group Los Otras for the month of May. Your DJ today is Dan Small. Our backup DJ is Chris Paul. Our ushers are Erica and Alex Johnson Jimenez and Cy Schuster. Our tech support today is Jordan Jones. If you, like me, are visiting today, you're invited to put your name and where you're participating from in the chat now so that we can greet you. We are so glad you are here with us. And now, Judy has an announcement. Good morning, everybody. We just have one announcement this morning. Our board of directors has decided to reschedule the special congregation meeting planned for today. It will now occur in two weeks on Sunday, May 16th at 2 p.m. We're rescheduling in order to add an important and a very joyful agenda item, a vote to ordain our former ministerial intern, Jane Davis. Our bylaws require two weeks written notice for any motion to be brought before our membership for a vote. Members, check your email today for that updated notice. The town hall prior to the meeting has also been rescheduled for Saturday, May 8th at two o'clock in the afternoon. The login for both of the meetings is the same as these worship services. Thank you. We light our chalice this morning with the help of Blake Rivera, and Natalie Quo Lilly, and the words of Reverend Dr. David Bredeen. Welcome to a new story. Welcome to a day unwritten. We gather to speak of possibility. We remember the losses. We celebrate the victories. As people of story, we embrace the possible, 
over the probable, weaving a story of hope. Join us in the new story. Join us in the day unwritten. Join us in the future of possibility.
We are Unitarian Universalists. We are people of faith with open minds, loving hearts, and helping hands. Frederick by Leo Leone All along the meadow where the cows grazed and the horses ran, there was an old stone wall. In that wall, not far from the barn and the granary, a chatty family of field mice had their home. But the farmers had moved away, the barn was abandoned, and the granary stood empty. And since winter was not far off, the little mice began to gather corn and nuts and wheat and straw. They all worked day and night, all except Frederick. Frederick, why don't you work, they asked. I do work, said Frederick. I gather sun rays for the cold, dark winter days. And when they saw Frederick sitting there, staring at the meadow, they said, And now, Frederick? I gather colors, answered Frederick simply, for winter is gray. And once Frederick seemed half asleep. Are you dreaming, Frederick? They asked reproachfully. But Frederick said, No, oh no, I am gathering words. For the winter days are long and many, and we'll run out of things to say. The winter days came, and when the first snow fell, the five little field mice took to their hideout in the stones. In the beginning, there was lots to eat, and the mice told stories of foolish foxes and silly cats. They were a happy family. But little by little, they had nibbled up most of the nuts and berries. The straw was gone. The corn was only a memory. It was cold in the wall, and no one felt like chatting. Then they remembered what Frederick had said about sun rays and colors and words. What about your supplies, Frederick? they asked. Close your eyes, said Frederick, as he climbed on a big stone. Now I send you the rays of the sun. Do you feel how their golden glow? And as Frederick spoke of the sun, the four little mice began to feel warmer. Was it Frederick's voice? Was it magic? And how about the colors, Frederick? They asked anxiously. Close your eyes again, Frederick said. And when he told them of the blue periwinkles, the red poppies and the yellow wheat, and the green leaves on the berry bush, they saw the colors as clearly as if they had been painted in their minds. And words, Frederick? Frederick cleared his throat, <clears throat> waited a moment, and then, as if from a stage, he said, Who scatters snowflakes? Who melts the ice? Who spoils the weather? Who makes it nice? Who grows the four-leaf clovers in June? Who dims the daylight? Who lights the moon? 
Four little field mice who live in the sky. Four little field mice, like you and I. One is the spring mouse who turns on the showers. Then comes the summer who paints in the flowers. The fall mouse is next with walnuts and wheat, and winter is last with little cold feet. Aren't we lucky the seasons are four? Think of a year with one less or one more. When Frederick had finished, they all applauded. But Frederick, they said, you are a poet. Frederick blushed, took a bow, and said shyly, I know it. Let us pause the chat for just a few moments during our meditation and prayer. I invite you to settle comfortably in your space and let us take a few deep breaths together. What is worrying you today? What burdens are you carrying? We enter into our time of meditation with the words of Marie Oliver from her poem, I Worried, and will follow with two minutes of silence. I worried a lot. Will the garden grow? Will the rivers flow in the right direction? Will the earth turn as it was taught? And if not, how shall I correct it? Was I right? Was I wrong? Will I be forgiven? Can I do better? Will I ever be able to sing? Even the sparrows can do it and I am, well, hopeless. Is my eyesight fading or am I just imagining it? Am I going to get rheumatism, lockjaw, dementia? Finally, I saw that worrying had come to nothing and I gave it up and took my old body and went out into the morning and sang.
Our church is a welcoming community where we find connection, a spiritual community where we find meaning. Our church is a sharing community where our joys are amplified, a caring community where our joys and sorrows are lessened. We take this moment to reflect on our joys and sorrows and acknowledge the mutual support of our community. Please type in the chat box, first your joys and then your sorrows. If you're unable to write in the chat box, please email the church at caring at uuabq.org. And may we remember those who have spoken, those they have named, and those who hold in silence in our hearts.
We share together to ease the hardship and celebrate the good. Like flowers in spring, family and celebrations, like Christine Robinson welcoming a great nephew. We also hold those who are dealing with mourning, friends in trouble, places far and wide like India that are struggling, and the health of everyone we love. We also hold Melissa and Rick Kennedy and their furry family in our hearts this morning as we learned that yesterday they experienced a house fire. We hold gratitude for their safety. We also offer love to Elaine Brown in her grief over her father, Dick Brown's death. And we lift up Kathleen Road as she struggles with health challenges. All these things that weigh us down and lift us up, we hold up to the great powers of healing and renewal. Please join me in the spirit of prayer. May we listen deeply to each other's stories. May hearing other tales expand our experiences and our hearts. May our stories be part of the long arc of a moral universe that bends towards justice. May our stories help us truly see each other and respond with an extravagant God-sized, wasteful amount of compassionate love. Small 
connects us and helps us better understand ourselves, each other, and what we are called to do together. According to authors Lewis and Jenka, identity is shaped by the stories we tell about ourselves and those others tell about us. Our identity is shaped by relationships, history, ritual, shared values, and our picture of the future. It is informed by decisions we have made, testing we've endured, and by our sense of calling and purpose. I am answering the call to become a minister. And our other storytellers, Alana and Emily, are also, through their stories, answering their call of how to be in this world. This morning, we invite you into our stories and want to name that the reality of our stories can be harsh and some content intense. As you listen, we invite you to consider the question, how do your own stories shape what you are called to do? It was raining. I looked like a hobbit, all curly hair, stubby little legs, and a huge polka dot rain poncho covering me and my backpack. We had started the protest march close to the spot where Elijah McLean had been murdered. And we were marching with our signs and chants to the police headquarters miles away. We had done the same route before and we were traveling across I-225. I can't remember what happened first, if I heard the screams or if the crowd started running, but suddenly the world was chaotic. A blue Jeep engine gunning came into view heading straight towards us. The Jeep seemed to be going incredibly fast and was viciously close, the slipstream of air a physical force pushing me back. Just then something cracked hard on my head and another projectile fell at my feet, shattering broken glass, stinging my legs. People were throwing things at the Jeep, perhaps to try to slow him down, but I was so close those things were hitting me. I, I turned away and in seemingly slow motion, the young man just a few feet to my right pulled out and pointed a gun at the Jeep. 
which was going so fast it was already very far away. But he began shooting. There was no time to pro process. People began shoving and pushing to get off the elevated concrete barrier contained freeway. There was more panic as people saw the blood from the protesters who'd been shot or trampled. Watching the medic team reach the injured, I began helping people over the concrete barrier. My loud, theatrically trained voice calling out for people to walk, please don't push. And as I grabbed people's hands or laced my hands to boost their feet over, it occurred to me that this was the first human contact I'd had since the pandemic began. I heard a call for gauze and struggled like an upside down turtle to try to extract the first aid kit out of my backpack and passed it to someone without even looking. Once the freeway cleared, I realized my own dilemma in being only five feet of soaking wet old lady trying to climb that high concrete barrier myself. Fortunately, someone on the other side grabbed my arms and helped drag me across. Only once off the freeway did it occur to me that I had no idea where I was. I had no idea where I'd parked my car. I had given away all my water and my first aid kit. And despite my polka dot poncho, I was soaked through. How do your own stories shape the things you are called to do? Do they, like me, carry the thread of a lifetime of activism? I was 20 years old with a new husband and a toddler daughter, and I had just received my GED and my nursing assistant certification. Now, if you had asked me before this moment what I wanted to do when I grew up, I would have said be a teacher, college graduate, living in another state. And after about a month working at a nursing home, I realized that nursing assistants wasn't my calling. What was calling me, apparently, was cheesecake. I had taken a job at a local cafe that had the best cheesecake. After working there for a week or two, I went to go pick up my daughter from daycare and the administrator stopped me to tell me about an opportunity the company was offering parents. They would train us to be substitute teachers. I was interested, remember my desire to work in education, but the program was unpaid and my husband and I couldn't really afford for me to lose my meager income. A day or two after that, I was at the cafe during the lunch rush and I was working behind the counter. I heard someone shout, Lorraine, Lorraine. And I looked up to see who was shouting and I made eye contact with the cafe owner who was sitting at a table with some regular customers and he was motioning me over. Oh, okay, it's me. He thinks my name is Lorraine. So I walk over and I say, I'm really sorry, I didn't know you were talking to me. My name is Alana. And he responded, you work for me, I'll call you whatever I want. I was completely shocked and really offended. My name matters and no, you cannot call me whatever you want. That day, 
I put in my notice, went to go pick up my daughter, and signed up for the parent substitute training. Upon completion, I was offered a full-time job in an infant classroom as an assistant teacher. I did it. I was starting my career in education. The company had some great benefits, including tuition reimbursement. So I signed up to take some community college classes to get my certificate in early, college, early childhood education. I didn't go long, though, because it became difficult for my husband and I to simultaneously work full-time, go to school, and raise our young daughter. I put my education on hold so that he could finish, fully intending to go back once he was done. The next several years after that included me quitting my job to become a stay-at-home mom. This was my calling, so I was told. His graduation, the birth of our second daughter, moving to another city, and life, and challenges, and marital problems, a divorce, moving back to Albuquerque, getting another job, being a single mom, a new relationship, and so on. I didn't go back. It didn't seem as important. Then in 2016, I was remarried, working a job that I love as the RE administrator. My kids were older and I was stable and supported. And I finally knew what I wanted to be when I grow up. Working here, I had fallen in love with religious education. And you mean to tell me I can make a career out of two things that I love most, education and Unitarian Universalist values, where do I sign up? I reapplied to community college because a degree was going to be necessary if I wanted to be a director someday, and I continued working in, at this amazing job. As a member of the church, I was involved with other groups also, like the young adults. In 2018, a group of us went to General Assembly in Kansas City, and when I went to go check in at the conference center, I ended up in Kelsey's line, who is also there with our group. I remember him saying something like, huh, that's weird. And I said, what's weird? And he said, you're the only one with the last name Rodriguez here. And what's weird about that is Rodriguez is the ninth most common last name in the United States. And there were about 3,000 people, if not more, in attendance. There had to be another Rodriguez. I started to wonder, how many other people with Spanish surnames are in attendance? How many BIPOC or Black, Indigenous, and other people of color are in attendance? Is there a space for BIPOC people? I could hear the conversations when I was in common spaces. We need more BIPOC people. We need to be more diverse. How do we appeal to marginalized people? These conversations are important but I found that most of the time they made me feel uncomfortable. I identify as a person of color and although the questions being asked were good, they weren't the, the only or even the most crucial ones that we needed to consider. What were the expectations unspoken with the desired answers to these questions? Was it that we open our sanctuary doors to welcome in BIPOC people but then keep doing things exactly as we have been doing them? Is that true inclusion? I heard it over and over with the same problematic solutions being offered, albeit well-intentioned. That stayed with me throughout GA and beyond. About a year later, I received a promotion at work as a youth programs coordinator. 
Now my calling into education, along with my calling into RE as a program leader, was coming to fruition. Again, this calling was not looking like I had imagined, but I was in love with it. We have some amazing youth at this church, as evidenced by the coming-of-age service last week. At the same service last year, two of our youth talked about being youth of color in our congregation and in a denomination where they don't often get to see someone with whom they can identify in a leadership position. Where do I belong? One of them asked. This too stuck with me. Let me assure you there are many, including some amazing BIPOC people, doing the hard work to make some of the necessary changes and having the conversations in order that for you use everywhere to recognize our history and complacency in white supremacist culture. I've begun attending some meetings with other BIPOC religious professionals, having some of these conversations with the personal goal in mind to do my part to make our campus truly inclusive to all, including those like the two youth who spoke last year. This, at least right now, is my calling. Has the path you're on in your journey looked much different than you thought it would? How has your calling remained the same, but manifest in ways you never saw coming? My father was in a small curtained area of the emergency room. He had been sick for about a week and we thought it was just the flu. But he was a slight man weighing no more than 120 pounds and he had gotten dehydrated. So my stepmother had insisted he go to the ER. She was outside with my, at the time, infant daughter. And it was my turn to sit with my dad while we waited for a doctor to see him. I don't really remember my dad ever being sick when I was a child, but a few years earlier, his appendix had burst and he'd been in the hospital a very long time. And during that stay, he had been unable to bend his torso. And after a while, his toenails needed clipping. And I was the only family member willing to help him with that particular task. As we waited together in the ER, he was joking about how he hoped he did not have to drag me back into nail clipping duty. We both laughed. Three minutes later, he died. I have a lot of plans for 2020. How about you? Well, I plan to have a baby, take maternity leave, go back to my nursing job at UNM, finish up my graduate degree, move with my family for Dan's new ministry position, and find a new job there. I did have a baby and an unexpectedly difficult birth. Four weeks into my maternity leave, we all went into pandemic lockdown. My plans rapidly fell apart and my sense of control was gone. I ended up not going back to work. I had the immense privilege to stay home. I resented it. 
I resented what I labeled as a prolonged lapse from my calling as a nurse. I missed feeling important to others and journeying with my patients. I could not hear the voice still and small that normally centered me. The stories of my life are bound up in everyone I meet. To tell you about my calling, I have to tell you about all the wonderful humans who have allowed me to enter their lives at profoundly vulnerable moments. In 2010, I accepted a position as a prenatal health educator in labor doula. It surprised me that what I loved the most about this job was accompanying people at their births. As a doula, I was their advocate. My patients shared the most intimate part of their lives with me. I was amazed that each person's story was so different, yet the ways we connected with each other were fundamentally the same. It was annoying heart to heart that allowed us to fully accept each other's presence. And there was a willingness to be vulnerable that I had never experienced before, and that compelled me to become a nurse. As a brand new nurse, I worked at Planned Parenthood. Every day, I would drive through the clinic gates past protesters. They would hold up their graphic signs and shout, abortion is murder, repent or you'll burn in the fiery pits of hell. So I said that a little sarcastically, but they did not. And I felt sorry for them. These protesters connected with their faith by yelling at terrified patients many of whom were coming to get birth control or exams, and others, yes, were coming to get abortions. Mostly I felt rage at the hate they spewed because the last thing being a Unitarian Universalist has informed me to do is to judge my patients or make their lives harder. My role as a nurse with my patients was to listen, hold their hands, walk them to the bathroom, and cover them with blankets while they rested. I would stick a few extra pads in their take-home bags when they told me how hard it would be to get to the store without their parents or roommates or partner noticing. I felt so privileged to share in their journeys. My next job was the night shift at a pediatric hospital taking care of kids of all ages. Now, some of them practically lived in the hospital. They would be in the same room for months at a time. Still, these kiddos smiled, played, asked questions. They truly just wanted to be kids. I quickly learned that their parents were also my patients. They carried fear and pain that I could not fix as easily with silly jokes that Dan told me or with popsicles, but I worked hard to make them feel heard, involved, and cared for. As I tiptoed in and out of my patients' rooms while they slept, I wished for my patients to have deep peace and healing. Robert Ralt said, I look into the faces of people struggling with their own lives and I do not see strangers. For most of 2020, I struggled to recognize myself. And I felt lost in my struggle without having the other people's care to be my focus. The abrupt halt from work and school left me feeling completely derailed. I was nowhere near the calling I had been working so diligently toward, or so I thought. I couldn't hear my calling. The sense of you are not doing enough or being enough became you are not enough. 
Did you feel like you weren't doing enough or being enough in 2020? It wasn't the truth. You do enough. You are enough. What we are called to do has nothing to do with the titles or the boxes we check. The truth is that I never stopped doing what I feel deeply called to do. I was doing it all along, I just couldn't hear it. In its quiet ways though, that still and small voice was still there. I checked in with other new parents, listened to friends and family when they needed to talk about the stresses of the pandemic. I supported Dan with his new job. I loved, loved, loved on our beautiful baby. In the spring, I started volunteering at vaccine clinics and helping vulnerable folks find vaccine appointments. Their stories have changed and humbled me in such a familiar way. I missed it. All of this is my calling. Your true calling is what makes you come alive. So my calling is to see and respect people, to show them their goodness and lift them up. After the hardest year of my life, I found my calling again, or rather I figured out it was never gone. Even when that still and small voice was almost inaudible, it was always there. And now it sings loudly again. What do your stories and the stories of others call you to do? How has your calling changed over time? And what helps you to hear it? My paternal grandmother had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's nearly eight years previously. And after my dad died, I inherited her. She no longer knew what a fork was and had lost her English, Spanish, and was reduced back to her original language, Italian, losing those languages in the exact opposite order of how she had learned them. The priest from a nearby Catholic church had begrudgingly agreed to come. My grandmother was not technically a parishioner since it had been years since she had had the ability to attend mass. As the priest began to administer last rites, my grandmother, who just hours before had seemed at death's door, began loudly passing gas and giggling like an infant. The priest was not amused. As I huddled in the corner, trying not to laugh and distancing myself from a religious ritual, which made me very uncomfortable, the priest suddenly did a loud <clears throat> and looked at me pointedly. I returned his stare with wide eyes, completely at a loss as to what he was trying to communicate. And after a few awkward moments of silence, he huffed and said loudly, and also with me. Once he left, my grandmother and I sat together, me rubbing oil gently into her hands while she hummed along to her favorite Italian arias, both of us giggling together in total delight every time she passed gas. How do your own stories 
shape the things you were called to do? Is it shaped by new ideas of spiritual ritual? Alton Pollard III claimed that whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, all of us in one way or another somehow have been called. He explains that our calling is not in simply talking about an extraordinary spiritual experience, as real, as important as those are for some. Rather, he claims it is the quiet gathering up of the substance of one's life. The quiet gathering up of the substance of one's life. The substance of our lives is in our stories. All the parts of our lives, family, activism, heartbreak, teaching, caregiving, converge into our calling. What story is calling you? The words for our offering this morning is the river of community by John Saxton. A religious community is like a river formed from the many streams of our lives that meet and merge and flow to the sea. As members and friends of this religious community, we share our time and energy, our creativity, imagination, and vision, our talents, skills, and gifts, and the streams of our individual lives to create a river that is both deep and broad, a river that is made of many streams, sustains life, and refreshes the land through which it flows. But the river of this community also depends on our shared financial support that makes real our shared values and vision. Through the months of March, April, and May, our Change for the Future recipient is the American Civil Liberties Union of New Mexico. The ACL of New Mexico protects and advances justice, liberty, and equality as guaranteed by the constitutions of New Mexico and the United States. It is especially focused on groups that have been historically disenfranchised. You can make an offering online by clicking on the link that we've put in the chat box. And if you prefer not to give online, you can simply mail a check to the church and include change for the future in the memo. We will now receive an offering for the support of this religious community and its work for the future to include change for the future. Thank you.
Thank you for sharing stories with us this morning. As you stay on our Zoom to join us for conversation in our breakout rooms, or as you head out to the rest of your day, we invite you to think about what the stories of your life call you to do. And more importantly, for community is where the true magic happens. We end our time together today with the words of poet Muriel Rukhire. The universe is made of stories, not atoms.